Hi, I'm George Bailey. My wife Christina and I have four children. We started this podcast, Choose the Nickel, in an effort to learn how to raise our children to be financially and professionally successful adults. We seek out fascinating people and ask them about their own childhood so that we can learn from them. Our next guest is Jordan Adler, millionaire mentor and best-selling author of Beach Money, Creating Your Dream Life Through Network Marketing. Jordan has built businesses consisting of over 200,000 distributors and nearly 500,000 customers in countries all over the globe. He's a builder, speaker, leader, trainer, and motivator. You can learn more about Jordan Adler by going to the show notes for this episode at choosethenickel.com. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Jordan Adler, welcome to Choose the Nickel. Hey, George, how you doing? Doing great. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time. Well, it's good to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Your book, Beach Money, is all about creating your dream life through network marketing. Tell us just a little bit about that. And in particular, I want you to focus on what your dream life is. Wow. I actually wrote the book 10 years ago, the first book. There's actually two books. The second book was just recently written. And the reason I wrote it was I did a weekly conference call and I had notes for the call each weekend. I thought that these notes would be a great training lesson for new people coming into the profession of network marketing. And so I decided to put it into a book and it it was a generic book. And it's really all about creating time freedom through leverage. That's the whole book is creating time freedom through leverage. And it's filled with Lots of stories uh, about people that have done it, as well as, you know, some lessons along the way. We tend to get what we focus on. And most people focus on their whole lives. They focus on linear income, meaning they get they trade time for money. And that's what they believe is the way to make money. But fortunately, when I was very young, I was at a garage sale and I picked up a book called The Ten Napkin Presentations by Don Fahila. I picked it up for a quarter And it talked about the whole idea of leveraged income or residual income, and it got my attention. And so I started studying it, and we do get what we focus on. And so for many years, I was really focusing, what could I do to create leveraged income so that when I'm still relatively young, I'd be able to live a lifestyle that would allow me to travel the world, not make my decisions based on how much something's going to cost, be able to create experiences and help others to achieve their dreams. And so that's really what Beach Money is about. Nice, nice. Well, tell me then, when you are freed up and you were just like, dude, I want to do what I want to do right now, what is it that I want to do? Well, everybody's different. You know, I'll tell you some of the things that I had on my bucket list, so to speak. When your income equals your bills, you're financially free. In other words, when your monthly income, a check that comes in month after month after month after month, whether you have to go to work or not, when you've got that, that's called linear or nonlinear income, residual income. Then you're financially free. Well, some of the things that I wanted to do, one was um, I wanted to learn how to fly helicopters. Late in life for me, you know, most people get their helicopter license when they're early 20s. When I was in my early 20s, I was making 20 grand a year at my job. There was no way I was getting a helicopter license. It's not cheap. And so my hobby today, I don't fly for money. I fly for fun and I take friends up. I own my own helicopter. I just I bought a helicopter about four months ago and I've been nice. leasing helicopters for about four years. And I take friends over the mountains. We go land in Death Valley at the Furnace Creek Resort or at the Pahrump Vineyards, and we have lunch and hang out and then fly back. And I do stuff like that. That's one thing. And another one is, you know, when I was really young, I decided I wanted to be an astronaut. But they weren't talking about sending civilians into space, and only a handful of people have actually gone into space. Yeah. 
Then Richard Branson came along and started the Virgin Galactic Civilian Space Program. Nobody's gone up yet, but they're testing the rockets and the ships and it's a space shuttle and I'm going to I'm actually on the list to go up into space. So that's another thing and then of course now, beach When you beach, say that, aren't you on the first flight or what's where are you on that list? It's very exciting. Well, they're doing test flights right now. They've gotten to 52 miles over the earth, which is space. We'll be going 100 miles over the earth in two and a half minutes. Uh, Richard Branson and his family will go up first, and they'll probably be – I'll be in the first 400 people. There's six people at a time, and I'll be in the first 400 people to go up in the program. It's capped now. They're not bringing anybody else into it, but for this – For this stage, yeah. This program has been underway for 10 years. They just recently, about two weeks ago, got the first spaceship into space. So it's still going – they're still undergoing testing. Wow. Wow. So Ah. there's a whole bunch of other things. I travel all over the world. I go, I take friends and meet with family members all over the world, you know, just on vacations, long vacations. And because my business is a business that allows me to work from anywhere. When you were a kid, then you're saying that you had this dream that you wanted to be an astronaut. And it's not so much that you wanted to be an astronaut. You wanted to go to space. I was probably 25 years old. And at that point, that was a long time ago. And back then, the only people that would be going to space are people that were engineers and people that had were aviators. And I was a, you know, I grew up in a lower middle income family and never, there was never even a possibility for someone like me to go to space back then. I mean, I had already passed the window at the age of 25. And at the oh, age yeah. of 25, I was, I was making 20 grand. I was working at a gym, you know, there's no way I'm going to go up into space. But then years later, I was in Salt Lake City and I uh, ran into a woman she had read my book and she asked me if I was Jordan. And I said, yeah. And I, where are you from? She said, New Zealand. And I said, so what do you do? And she says, I'm a travel agent. And I just assumed that because she was a travel agent, she was probably hurting financially. Yeah. So I said, well, what do you do? And in, in, in the travel business, and she says, I book space. And I go, space? Um, <laughs> give me like space on cruise ships, space in, in hotels. And she goes, no, I book space. And she points up. And so what she does is she sells tickets on Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic space program. And so I met with Virgin Galactic, didn't tell them about my goal that I'd written down years prior. And then eventually I found it in a journal. I'd written down space traveler when I was 25 years old. You know, 40 years later, I'm booking a ticket to go up into space in the civilian space program. So, yes, um, yeah, that's awesome. one One of many dreams. So where were you born then? I was born in the north suburbs of Chicago, but I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago in a pretty, well, at the time when I was a kid, it was an okay area, but it's a pretty tough area. There's a lot of crime in that area in Chicago. What were your hobbies back then when you were really young? You know, it was funny because I did not grow up in an entrepreneurial family, but my dad taught me entrepreneurial lessons, even though he wasn't really an entrepreneur. Got it. And so I'd have puppet shows and magic shows and I'd charge 20 cents to my friends to come to them. I had a paper route. I was probably eight years old, maybe seven, eight years old. And I had a paper route. And I can remember trying to figure out ways that I could increase my tips because I made money 100% on tips. Oh, yeah. I obviously looked for ways to be extra friendly to the people that I was delivering the paper to. And it was a paper by choice. So they could they either wanted the paper or they didn't, but they didn't pay for the paper. It was just, I think maybe they paid for it, but all the money went to the company and then I received the tips. And so, but it was very inexpensive. It was called The Reporter. And I don't <laughs> even remember what the, what the purpose of the paper was, but I started handwriting cards to my customers and leaving them on their door, thanking them. Yes. Um, and they would tip me extra 
They'd always, and then the holidays would come around and, you know, I'd send them a Christmas card or a holiday card and they'd tip me more, you know? And so I learned that if you treat people nice and, you know, you stay in touch with them in a meaningful way that they're going to tip you more. And so that was a lesson that I learned having a paper route. Well, this is great because, you know, when you mention cards and whatnot, I know that you're very involved in send out cards, which I think is a terrific concept. I am a client of send out cards and I love that. And so that little bit of your childhood all of a sudden sent you on this path, you know, where you see like, hey, when I really give personal attention to people, I get rewarded for that. Absolutely. The other thing is I learned how to handle rejection because I remember some people getting mad because I asked them if they wanted a paper. And I remember that, you know, they were probably having a bad day, but I remember the feeling of discouragement when people would turn me down. That was a lesson. I remember delivering the newspapers in ice storms and snowstorms, how challenging that was, but I was committed to do it. And I remember my dad pushing me out the door. He said, you committed to doing this. You've got to go out and deliver those papers, even though the weather may not be that great. I want to go back to the puppet shows okay. because that is really interesting. Not a lot of people I know really understand puppetry or even for them, it doesn't even have an appeal. Where did the appeal come from? I didn't understand puppetry. I just, <laughs> you know, I think my, my parents got me a Charlie McCarthy ventriloquist puppet when I was a kid for yeah. one of the holidays and. I think I used to just put on shows with my sisters and we used to just charge friends 20 cents to come to the show. We'd come up and there wasn't even like, I mean, I don't even think we ever really planned the show out. You know, we just, it was, <laughs> I'm not a puppeteer by any means, you know, I like to do magic when I was a kid. So I would just have little, I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I didn't own a business, nothing like that. It was just more of something that I love to do and that I know that people pay to go to shows. And so they, I would charge, you know, uh. That's and cool. it wasn't, I'd make, you know, I'd walk away with $2.20, you know, that kind of thing. So what, but for somebody who's six years old or seven years old, that was back then, that was a good amount of money, you now, know? See, I have to admit that my instinct, if I'm going to entertain somebody, at least when I was a kid, I had this instinct where if I was going to get someone in front of me, then I thought, well, you know, I've got to pay for the puppets and then maybe I have to get some food to entice them to come in. And so, you know, from a normal perspective. You know, you're going to basically pay other people to entertain them. But right. as a kid, you already got that. Where do you think that you got that instinct to actually charge money and the confidence that they would pay it? Yeah, it wasn't that sophisticated, George. I, I <laughs> Truthfully, I don't even know because I didn't have a model of entrepreneurship at that age. I grew up yeah. in a lower middle income neighborhood. And so I don't know of anybody in that neighborhood that was entrepreneurial. I do have some lessons that my dad taught me that are entrepreneurial, but he wasn't one. For example, you know what a dandelion is? Uh, I mean, in the literal sense, but uh, maybe not in the sense that you're describing it. Well, a dandelion is a, a, a weed that grows oh, in yeah, the middle. Yeah, yeah. yeah, a yellow, it looks like a yellow flower. Because I mean, if you're out west, you don't know what a dandelion is. But if you're in the east coast, you probably do or, or midwest. My dad used to pay me. They'd be all over our yard, hundreds of them. And he oh, paid yeah. a penny for every dandelion that I picked. And I had to pick it out from the roots. So I had to show him how many there were. And he would give me one penny for every dandelion that I pulled out of the yard. So if I wanted to make some extra money, I'd go pull out 200 dandelions and I'd have $2. And I like that idea. 
You know, yeah. because we're living in the Midwest, we're in St. Louis, and you know, I already have some systems that I've been using with my own children to, to teach them about money, but also about work, and th- those are not the same things. And I like that incentive, fairly easy, and I think that we are probably overwhelmed with dandelions, though it's winter right now, so it's hard to tell. Well, and the same thing, he would have me shovel the sidewalk, and he'd pay me for that, or he'd have me wash the windows in the summer. You know, when he felt confident that I was going to be safe on a ladder and, he, and I did that and he would pay me for that. And so those were entrepreneurial lessons. It was like trading money for value. You do something that's going to make something better and I'm going to pay you. And he didn't pay me a lot. He made me work hard for the little amount of money that he paid. But and there were a couple other things that were big deals. One time I, I came home, I was probably seven years old, maybe eight and my sisters who were younger were playing right inside the front door and the front door was locked. And there was this pane, this window pane glass that went from the, the roof to the to the ground right next to the front door. And I was outside and it was like a fogged glass. So I couldn't really see them, but I knew they were there and I was pounding on the door and they weren't answering the door. And so I eventually decided to kick in the window. And at the age of eight oh. years old. So I kicked the window with my foot and it breaks. And of course, that was not a good thing. So my dad paid me a quarter allowance per week, 25 cents a week in allowance. When I kicked in the window, the window, I think, was about $400. I did not get my allowance until I paid off the entire window. And I also could work to make the money to pay it off. So that was another lesson. You know, there was there was an entrepreneurial lesson in that I did damage and I had to pay for the damage that I did, you know, oh, wow. and it, he took it out of the money that I would normally get paid each week for my allowance and any projects that I did could be credited towards the price of the window. You know, that's always my fear right now that our kids will break one of our windows and they haven't done it yet. They've not done it, but I'll tell you that they did shove our AC unit out of the second story. Oh, and I don't know how they did it to this day. I still don't understand like physically how sh- they were able to do it and not throw themselves out with it. Right. You know? <laughs> but kids break stuff, you know? Uh, so yeah. were you, were you otherwise pretty good about not breaking stuff or what was your, you know, were you a cautious kid, adventurous? I was a good kid, but I was rebel. Whatever my dad wanted me to do for the most part, unless there was money involved, yeah. I do the opposite. <laughs> so I was, I was a typical teenager in the seventies. I didn't dress. My hair wasn't the way he wanted it to be. I didn't dress the way he wanted me to dress. My mother pretty much just went along with whatever my dad said about that stuff. You know, there were some things that he would discipline me on, but most of the time he would kind of cut me slack on a lot of things. And and I think that it's a common trait of a child to be either entrepreneurs. A lot of times they're very ADD. Yeah. That's a typical quality of an entrepreneur. They typically won't follow the status quo. I definitely was one to not follow the status quo from the time that I was probably one or two years old. I didn't follow the status quo. I would always want to be the one that was unique or special. I would do things that would cause me to stand out. In a lot of ways, that's an entrepreneurial quality. Hmm. You cut your own path based on your own personal beliefs and desires and your desire to contribute or desire to make the world a better place. And you cut your own path. You don't make your choices and decisions based on what other people think. Yep. Which is outside the status quo. What is the worst thing that you did that you're willing to tell us about? When I was a kid? Yeah. I'll admit it. I It's going to be on <laughs> a couple things. I smoked a lot of pot when I was younger. Got it. 
don't, I don't anymore. I'm a helicopter pilot. I don't smoke. No. smoke <laughs> I used to smoke a lot and I used to lie to my parents about it. You know, I got into the forest and smoke with my friends. We do bongs in the woods. And then I would also do it at night before I went to bed in my room and they'd smell it. And I'd come up with really lame excuses of what it was. They had to know, but they never challenged me on it. So, so what were the excuses? Oh, it was horrible. It's like, it doesn't even, it makes no sense at all. So I had, <laughs> it makes no sense. And, and they, I know they didn't buy it, but they never challenged me. So I had a drawer full of matchbooks uh, from different businesses and I would tell them I was burning the matches out of my matchbook collection in my bedroom. <laughs> like, what about burning the house down, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I would, what I would do is I, you know, I'd smoke out of this pipe and then I'd blow it out the window and they could smell it. It was everywhere every night. Wow. So, but this was in the 70s and, and they never, I did at one point, I came back from college and I was, my mom found some marijuana in a, old cash register that I had. I had this big old antique cash register that I picked up at a garage sale and I had been away at college. And so when I, we were sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner table and she said, I found something in your cash register. And I'm like, what were you doing in my cash register? And she said, okay, I'm not mad. I just want to see what, I just want to see what it smells like. So we sat on my bed and I lit it up (laughs) and, uh, And my mom, so she literally, I lit it up and within 15 seconds of lighting up, she's like, okay, put it out, put it out. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I didn't get in trouble. You know, I, I mean, I, they had to know that that's what I was doing. What did that do for you that your parents didn't overreact? They gave me leeway. Yeah. I would get in trouble if I did really bad thing. So there were lines. There were lines. One time I stole a kite from a grocery store and I got in big trouble for that. Breaking the window, I got in big trouble for that. Yeah. The marijuana thing, for whatever reason, they didn't. And back then it wasn't legal and it was yeah. in their home. One time I brought a girl home that they didn't like and I got in trouble for that. Really? Wow. It was a situation where I was in college and I'd come home from college and there was a circus in town, a, ca- a carnival in town. And I brought brought home a carny girl. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> I brought her to the house at like one o'clock in the morning and my parents were sleeping and that didn't go over too well. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Well, you know, what's fascinating to me though is that every parent has his or her different line. It's always very interesting to me to see where those lines are. Breaking a window, I can totally understand that. I have to admit that if one of my kids were smoking pot, I don't know how I'd feel about that. That would be, you know, pretty rough. And I don't know if I'd overreact, underreact, if I'd play it just right. In, in some ways, to me, it sounds like your parents, at least in the long run, it feels like they played it just right because you're doing fine now. You I'm know? Doing, they made good decisions. The thing that had the greatest impact on me yeah. in terms of my entrepreneurial career, you know who Tom Hopkins is? I don't. Tom Hopkins was the number one sales trainer in the world for many, many years. And he's written books in multiple languages, How to Master the Art of Selling. He would do a sales training and 20,000 people would show up. And he was very famous in the 70s and 80s. He used to have boot camps and things. Anyway, Tom used to say at his trainings that most successful salespeople became successful because they had to prove something to someone. Hmm. And he would prove that by bringing people from the audience that were top earners in their profession in sales. And you'd find out that when he dug really deep, it was because they were somebody they needed to prove something to. And so my father was very, very cynical 
anything I would do around business that involved anything other than going and getting a job, he would get really, really upset. So if I talked about not going to college and instead starting a business, he would get upset. If I talked about leaving college, once I was in college and starting a business, he'd say, nobody makes money in business. You need to have a good job, work hard at your job, get your promotions. And he used to teach me that over and over and over again. And again, because I was a rebel, whatever my dad told me to say around business, I would do the opposite. And he was very cynical. So when I started doing network marketing and I'd been doing it for three months and I hadn't made any money, that was his proof that no one makes money in those things, that it's just a pyramid. So for many years, my MO was I needed to prove to my dad. I've made millions and millions of dollars in network marketing. I haven't had a job now since 1996. And my dad became a fan in his later years. My dad, I lost my dad about four years ago. The last 10 years of his life, he was really, he loved beach money. He gave beach money to many of his friends. Wow. I take him on cruises. I bought him a brand new car when his car started to break down. And so he became a huge fan of network marketing, but it took him many, many, many years. And I had to prove to him that it was a good thing. I'm sorry to hear that about your dad, but I really appreciate your sharing it. What's interesting to me is when you're in a position where you need to prove something to your own father. How do you then kind of stabilize that and, you know, (laughs) keep the relationship on this wonderful footing or was it just, it wasn't. No. In fact, there was a point, George, where I was sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner. This was a different time. Okay. (laughs) This wasn't the marijuana incident. This was a different time. So I had been involved in network marketing at this point, probably for six or seven years. And I'd never made one penny. I never signed up a single person. I think I was probably in my sixth or seventh company. And I knew that bringing up network marketing was a bad idea around my dad. And he asked me, and I wasn't living at home at the time. I was home for Thanksgiving. And he asked me, how's my network marketing business going? He was hoping that I would say not very good. And instead, I was very positive about it. And I said, it's promising. There's some big opportunity. I love what I'm doing, da 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 And he went off and we got in a fight. And before dinner was even served, I got up and went to the front door and slammed the front door and left. Wow. So it wasn't peaceful and stable all the time. We would get in fights about it. I learned not to bring my profession up. It wasn't a profession yet because I hadn't made any money at that point, but it was something that I really wanted. I just wanted to crack the entrepreneurial code for somebody who grew up in a family that really was not entrepreneurial. And show my dad that, yes, there is money if you add value and you contribute and you help lift other people up and help them achieve their dreams. So I knew the opportunity was there. I was very excited about it. It just took me a long time to figure it out. Where are you in the family order? I'm the oldest. And how many siblings? Yeah, two younger sisters. Two younger sisters. How did your sisters help shape you when you were children? So my sisters are... In a sense, one of my sisters is an entrepreneur. They've probably shown more entrepreneurial qualities in their later years than when they were younger. When they were younger, they were definitely not entrepreneurial. But both of my sisters in their own way have shown some entrepreneurial qualities. One is a musician, and she's created five CDs. And she hasn't sold a lot, but she is on most of the music, like iTunes and that kind of thing. And And she sells her CDs and she sells music and she books gigs and things like that. And then she's also got a job. And then my other sister is a graphic designer, graphic artist, and she designs T-shirts and 
purses and different things like that. And she sells those. So they are very entrepreneurial in that sense now. Uh, one lives in New York, one lives in Chicago. As I look back, I can't really think of a way that they shaped my entrepreneurial background. I really don't see it, it at all. Maybe not your entrepreneurial background, but other aspects of your personality. What were the things that you did together, that you enjoyed together, that you didn't like doing together? We would laugh a lot. As children, we played together. We shared a bedroom when we were very young, all three of us, and we would talk until the middle of the night. You know, we would fight too, but mostly it was just really, we got along great. We did everything together. We were all close in age, and we did pretty much everything together when we were kids. And it was just play. You know, yeah. like what kids do. Yeah. And back then, we would go out in the Midwest. Back then, it was safe for kids to run around till 10 o'clock at night by themselves in the neighborhood. And so oh, yeah. we would get our bikes or we'd go play hide and seek in the backyards, you know, at our friends' homes and things like that. We would do that kind of stuff. You know, the irony is that it still may actually be very safe in the Midwest to go play in the middle of the night and whatnot. But, you know, part of me thinks that we've really changed as parents and as a culture and what we expect. Because I remember growing up in the 80s and I was always – and this was in California, south of Oakland. And I was always out at night playing hide and seek, you know, running up the street and stuff like that. Tell me, what was probably your favorite toy as a child? Oh, two things. A flashlight. <laughs> okay. And Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Yes. Okay. Tell me more. What do you remember so, about Rock'em Sock'em Robots? Oh, it just was fun to compete. I, yeah. And I had that and it disappeared somewhere probably when I was, my mom probably gave it away when I was 12 or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. It just disappeared. And then fairly recently, somebody found a brand new Hasbro Rock'em Sock'em Robot still in the box from the 70s or from the 60s, everything was early 70s, and uh, bought it for me as a birthday gift. And so I wow. set it up, got it up at my place in the mountains. <laughs> oh, that's cool. How did they know? You're a big fan of the Rock'em Sock'em Robot. Do you ever have like matches or tournaments or anything like that? Or how do you ever? Oh, no, we just, I would just play with the friends. You know? <laughs> yeah. I also, you know, I also had a friend, he was a very close friend, and we would do things together in the neighborhood we were in my bedroom and I went to the restroom and came back and then he went home and I noticed this, I was probably 11, 12 years old and I had a collection of silver half dollars, Kennedy halves, the 50 cent Kennedy halves. They were pure silver. In other words, they didn't do the yeah. nickel. When they hit 1965, they started putting nickel in the silver half dollars. But before that, before 65, they were pure silver. And I knew that that was that was a good thing. And I had probably 50 of them that I had either bought or collected. I think I collected all of them just kind of because they were in circulation and I would find them. And I showed them to him and he stole them and took them to a pawn shop. And I never got them back. I remember his name, actually. He was no longer my friend. He wasn't even, obviously, my parents didn't allow him in the house anymore after that. And I didn't want to have anything to do with them after he stole those. And I never saw him again. But I think there was that kind of shaped my I'm a little bit cautious about who I trust. Yes. And I think from that. Wow. So you said flashlight though earlier. But yeah. you didn't say anything about any follow up. Like flashlight favorite toy. How? I don't know why. I have no I thought it was cool you turn the flashlight on in the dark and it, you, I don't know. It was just and I was very young. <laughs> like I was probably 6, you know. Nice. And then I got into 
anything mechanical was cool. I loved everything that was mechanical, like a cassette player with the buttons. I thought that was just real. I remember when I got my first one and I could put a cassette in it and play it. And that I don't know, there was something about electronics. And when I get a little bit older, probably 10 years old, I got into CB radios and talking on the radios. And I had walkie-talkies and that kind of stuff. Nice. Love stuff. Yeah. So did your parents ever talk with you about money? Your father did talk with you about business. He said, get a job, climb the ladder. But what about money itself? The only thing that I really remember him, two things I remember him talking about money. One is save your money. That was a big thing. He was right. I learned the hard way. Well, you were a contrarian. Right. So I didn't save money. I spent money. I invested money in things that I thought were exciting ideas when I got a little older. But after working for my first successful entrepreneurial endeavor, I made four million bucks, eight million bucks. And four million. And I wish I had taken 10% of it and just saved it, which I didn't do. If I had just taken 10% of my income and saved it, that $800,000 $800,000 would have been worth today probably four or five million. Wow. If I had just saved it, you know? And so he was right there. I should have done that. The second thing that he taught me about money is that it's rude to ask somebody how much money they're making. And what do you think about that today? He would get mad if, if I ever asked him how much money he made. Yeah. He'd get mad. I think it's a personal thing. And I don't think it's something that people need to ask other people. It doesn't really matter really about what you contribute, not what I did. Yes. Yeah. So people ask me once in a while and, you know, I'll volunteer certain things, but I don't, I don't like it when people ask me. And I think that came from my father's attitudes around it. Now I want to come full circle to your, your book and then end out with my last question. All of us really do, particularly parents these days, we want to free up our time. And this is something that you deal with in beach money so that we can get a little bit more time in with the people we love Give us a few thoughts about that. I think it's important to be organized and wherever possible, have somewhat of a routine. Yeah. I'm in a different city every week. So routine is difficult for me. But when I'm on solid ground at my home, I do have a schedule and it's a consistent schedule. I get up, I get my workout in in the morning. I do a little bit of reading. I have my days planned out with a schedule. I did learn this. You can predict the future of someone's income by looking at their schedule. Hmm. If you look at their calendar, you can predict the future of their income. If their calendar has nothing on it, that's a telltale sign. If their calendar is booked with just social things, that's a telltale sign. If they're in sales or if they're in network marketing or if they've got some type of a traditional business and they're doing things that are productive in terms of things that will allow them to grow, then and that's on their calendar, then that's a predictor of the future. I was at an event in L.A., a course. There were about a thousand people. This was a huge breakthrough for me because for many years I'd been telling people I'm going to the Virgin Islands. For 10 years I'd been telling people I'm going to be going to the Virgin Islands and I never went. And so the guy on the stage says, consider that it's not even in existence unless it's on your calendar. I didn't know that I was thinking about the Virgin Islands, but so I opened up my calendar and I wrote in October that year, I wrote Virgin Islands and I crossed off some days. And sure enough, the first time I went to the Virgin Islands was the dates that I put on my calendar. Because as soon as you put it on your calendar, then you start to go, you know, who am I going to be with? How long am I going to stay? Where am I going to stay? What am I going to do when I'm be there? How am I going to pay for it? All those kinds of things come to the surface. And so I ended up going and I've been now to the Virgin Islands probably eight times since then. But I've learned that if I want something to happen, I got to put it on my schedule. 
That's great. You know, and just to translate that into what that means for us as parents, I think you need to have a routine with your kids or at least certain firm written recorded expectations about how you're going to invest in them. I, I really like your system. You're doing amazing things, Jordan. I'd like to ask you what your favorite charitable cause is. How is it that you are giving to people? Well, it's no surprise. First of all, I do my best to always say yes when somebody comes to me for money for something that is meaningful to them. So for example, I have a a good friend that was in Paradise, California that lost everything in the fire. Her dream that she had been working on for 10 years to own a little organic cafe in Paradise. And she lived in Paradise with her mother and her daughter and everything was burned to the ground. Well, you know, she put out a GoFundMe and I always look, whenever I see a GoFundMe that comes from somebody who's important to me, somebody that, and even people that I don't know so well, I try and do something. I don't do it 100% of the time, but usually I do. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, when I wrote Beach Money over 10 years ago, Beach Money is an entrepreneurial book. So I wanted to give 100% of the profits away to a charity that supported entrepreneurial causes. So I found an organization called Kiva, K-I-V-A. They do micro lending to entrepreneurs in developing third world countries. So for example, a woman in... Africa wants to start a clothing design business and she needs a hundred dollars to buy material or fabrics, or there's a family in Indonesia that wants to set up a grocery store and they need $150 to buy their produce and get a location. I mean, it's, it's literally like that. And so when you go to Kiva.org website, you're going to see hundreds of people that on families that want to start businesses, but they need a hundred dollars or they need $50 and they need $200. And so through the website, you loan the money and then they pay the money back when the business starts to make money and then you can reloan the money out. So I've through the sale of beach money, almost a half a million dollars is now revolving through helping people start businesses to the tune of a hundred dollars up to a thousand bucks. And so we've helped thousands and thousands of people start businesses all over the world through the sale of beach money. Wow. That, that is terrific. And to think that that money just keeps on coming back and going out and coming back and going out and doing more and more good. That's the beauty of being able to get your money out there and helping folks out. I uh, love that cause. Thank you so much, yeah, Jordan, for sharing you. it. Jordan, it has been a real pleasure to have you on the show. I'm grateful for your stories. I feel like I got a terrific look into your childhood and it sounds <laughs> like you're just an amazing kid. So uh, thank you. Thank you, George, and I really appreciate it. This was fun. I enjoyed doing the show with you. Thank you for listening. Be sure to check the show notes at www.choosethenickel.com for links to names, books, and other resources we discussed in today's show. While you're there, subscribe to your newsletter. Also, please like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and share with your friends. We appreciate your support.